With more than 500 programs a year, there's never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org special to get special rates on membership. You're listening to the podcast for Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club. Buy tickets to upcoming live events in San Francisco at inforumsf.org. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram as InforumSF. Good evening. My name is Debbie Chang. I'm the president and CEO of Blue Shield of California Foundation, and we are extremely proud to welcome you to today's Inform program, Alicia Garza, The Purpose of Power. Alicia Garza is a civil rights activist, community organizer, co-creator of the Black Lives Matter movement, principal of the Black Futures Lab, Director of Strategy and Partnerships at the National Domestic Workers Alliance, and she's an accomplished writer. Her book, The Purpose of Power, How We Come Together When We Fall Apart, is out now. Today, Alicia will share her insights and advice for other activists who are building inclusive and empowering movements that lead to a more equitable and healthier world. Preventing domestic violence and poor health are at the core of our mission at the Blue Shield of California Foundation. We've learned that we must address the root causes like economic security, gender inequality, and racism to prevent poor health and stop domestic violence from occurring and reoccurring. Racism, which manifests itself in every corner of our society, produces physical and psychological harm, loss of life, loss of liberty, and loss of happiness and well-being. The evidence for ending racism to improve health is well established. As of today, racism has been declared a public health crisis in 145 state and local governments, up from only seven just a year ago. There's no question in my mind that the Black Lives Matter movement is to be credited for this ongoing transformation. As human beings, we're wired for social connection which is something the movement for Black Lives created through a platform where people like me, people unlike me, and millions of others can work together on a shared vision for Black Lives that ultimately will uplift our health. Tonight's program is an opportunity to deepen our connections and inspire meaningful change locally and beyond. We also want to thank Marcus Bookstore in Oakland for partnering with us and providing copies of The Purpose of Power. And lastly, we ask you that you consider donating to the Commonwealth Club during these precarious times. And now I'm pleased to welcome Alicia Garza and our moderator, Darnell Moore. Hello. Hello and welcome to today's virtual program with Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. My name is Darnell Moore. I'm the author of No Ashes in the Fire, Coming of Age, Black and Free in America. And tonight, I am really pleased, honored actually, to be in conversation with Alicia Garza. Alicia is a principal for the Black Futures Lab and a co-founder of the Black Lives Matter Global Network, and she is my sister and friend. She joins me at Inform today to discuss her new book. We are so excited about her new book. The Purpose of Power, How We Come Together When We Fall Apart. If you'd like to ask Alicia a question during our conversation, please ask it in the chat. 
if you're watching on YouTube, or in the comments if you're watching on Facebook. And we'll try to get through as many comments as possible by the end of the program. But given that we only have a short amount of time to engage in conversation with lots to talk about, I want to jump right in. So Alicia, welcome and big, big love and congratulations on the release of The Purpose of Power. It's so good to see you, my love. Thank you. Thank you for moderating this conversation. And hi to all the folks at Inforum. Thank you for having me. And excuse my um, pandemic puppy in the next room. He wants attention too. <laughs> Listen, we are learning how to be um, in relationship differently in a time of a pandemic. So we welcome the puppy and we certainly welcome you. Let's jump in. So the purpose of power is at once a book that combines elements of memoir, of social history, and cultural analysis. It's well-written. You're also a writer. And it's your looking into the past, the present, and the future of organizing for Black liberation and Black power. And at the heart of your writing is context. And as a Black feminist, you would understand that context is so critical. You begin the book by inviting the reader into your life world. Let me read a bit from the start of the book. One of my earliest memories is asking my mother about a poster that she had hanging up in the apartment we shared with my uncle. The poster featured a beautiful Black woman who looked just like my mother, so much so that I would regularly ask mommy if she was sure she wasn't the woman in the image. Casually wrapped in a gold, goldenrod headscarf, the woman gazes out into the distance next to the words, for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. I didn't know anything about the famous Kuro poem, but I had a sense then, as I do now, that there was something unique about the experience of Black women in a society that in so many ways seems to both fetishize and despise Black people. I recognize the sadness in the eyes of the woman in the poster it mirrored the sadness in the eyes of my own mother. Um, one, just want to just give love to your mama. Mm, thank you. Um, and ask, why was it important for you to begin with your context, and particularly the Black feminist underpinnings that were clearly present in your mammy's care of you? Oh, Darnell, you know, there's so many things I want to start off with, but to hear you say that you love the writing of this book means literally everything to me. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> when writers say <laughs> we love your writing, I like want to faint. <laughs> so look, for me, so much of what Black life is, so much of what my Black life has been is both and and not either or. And I actually think that that's a really critical place to start because it's a way for us to differently understand a world that we're in that essentially teaches us that everything is either or. Everything is black and white. Everything is two-dimensional. And I wanted to place myself in this book. I, I literally thought that when I started writing it, it was going to be a book about BLM. And when I started writing, I was up in Hedgebrook, uh, you know, in a little cabin with like one pot, one pan, one cup. Right? <laughs> and the first stories that came out were about my mother. And as I sat in the trees um, and tried to figure out how I was going to write this book, what I realized is that 
BLM story is still being written. This is not a BLM book, but in order to understand social change, there's so many people out there who are like, well, I don't understand how to get involved. It's, it's like social change is something that's outside of us. So many people think about social change as like charity work. It's something benevolent that you do for someone else. But my earliest teachers have taught me that everything you do in the world is a, an ex, it's a extension of your own experiences. It's about wanting to make your life better. And by extension, wanting to make sure that everybody has access to living a good life. And so in order for us to understand change differently, I felt it was really important to situate myself in time, place, and conditions and to help the reader make sense of the environment that I was growing up in, as unique as it was, right? I, I think for people who are reading this book, they'll realize, oh my God, this is a black girl that, you know, was born and raised in like a working class community, but then spent a lot of her life in a wealthy white community. And I didn't think black girls did that. And that's the thing about black folks. It's both and all the time. And that is because of the ways in which white supremacy shapes our lives, it shapes our experiences. I also wanted to help people understand that movements are not reserved for those of us who seek justice, that actually there's a powerful movement that's been shaping all of our lives for at least the last three decades. And that as I was coming of age, that movement was coming of age. It mm -hmm. was getting stronger. It was getting sharper. It was building institutions. And all of those things, as I embark on 40, are coming to fruition. All of the plans that were being made 30 years ago are things that are being implemented right now. So for anybody who's reading this book because they want to know what's the next step and how did we even get here in the first place, I think this book helps you understand the path that we've taken as people in America to this very precarious place that we're in right now. And I think it gives some breadcrumbs. It's not a how-to, but it gives some breadcrumbs as to um, what that means about what our strategies are to do something about it. And first of all, welcome Almost welcome to the 40s club. That's when we start looking, our skin start looking real good. Black don't cry. I, I was asking <laughs> what you doing because uh, I'm ready for it. But, you know, I just want to make sure I come in in style. <laughs> one of the things I um, wanted to ask you about when I was writing my book, um, I lost my father as, as I was in the middle of the writing process. And I don't know if many of the readers understand how profound an impact um, it is to lose someone that you are trying to humanize, complicate, unpack right. in the writing of a book, what that does to the process. Talk a little bit about that, if you're okay with that. Absolutely. Um, wow. I mean, first of all, I'm so sorry. And um, I didn't think I was going to finish this book, actually. Um, when my mom passed, it was very sudden. She wasn't sick that we knew of. I've never even seen my mom have a cold. And, um, you know, I, I, I say in the book that I, I found out that my mom was sick actually the day after um, I got to do a great book talk with Brittany Cooper, who had just put out her book, Eloquent Rage. And we had an excellent conversation at a little bookstore in San Francisco. And as I was on my way home, my dad called concerned about my mom. He said that she had, you know, been putting towels in the refrigerator and that actually her behavior had been erratic for maybe a couple of weeks. 
And at the time I thought nothing of it. I thought my mom is such a resilient person. She's, she comes back from everything. And so even if there is something wrong, maybe she had a stroke, maybe something happened, she'll be fine. The next seven weeks of that, um, from diagnose, it was seven weeks from diagnosis to death. And I was supposed to turn my book draft in literally the day my mom passed away. Um, and I, I don't know what to say about that experience, except death of somebody that you love and that loves you so dearly that you literally share cells with, um, it reorganizes you. It yes. reorganizes you in a way where you get really clear about what your purpose is. <laughs> you get really clear about how you're going to spend your time and how you're not going to spend your time. And it forces you to look at yourself in a different way. The process of my mom dying also gave me the opportunity to see her differently. Mm-hmm. You know, I told a story earlier about how when I started writing this book, I was up in a little cabin in Washington State. And it was one of the last um, really in-depth conversations that I ended up having with my mother. Actually, um, you know, she and I talked for about three hours and she told me all of these stories about my upbringing, about her relationship with my biological father that I had never heard before, mm-hmm. that I had filled in the gaps. I had, you know, created other stories. And it was in that moment that I saw my mom's humanity in a completely different way. And it was also during her dying process that I saw her humanity in a completely different way. It's shocking and jarring to see somebody that you love, who you know is so strong, be so vulnerable and to still be strong in that vulnerability. And I played the role of the caretaker in that process, right? I, I, I literally... Um, really felt myself as my mother's daughter um, Mm. during that process. Like everybody else was freaking out on a bunch of levels, right? I mean, when someone is making their transition, you're dealing with family, you're dealing with emotions, and then there's you, right? And somebody's got to take care of stuff. My mom would have been that person if it was anybody else. Um, But this time it was me. And in that, I, I think I got insight into a lot of the parts of her life that I think I had um, added pieces to that weren't hers. And so when I did finally decide to come back to the draft, because I knew my mom was so excited about the book, when she learned I got the book deal, she was like screaming. She was calling me every day, like, when's the book coming out? I was like, child, I need to start writing. I had no idea how to write a book, all the things. So When she um, passed, I knew I had to finish it. I knew she wanted me to finish it. And in a lot of ways, I felt like I had insights that I didn't have before. And so even though I would give anything to have her back, um, I don't think this book would have been what it is um, had we not gone through that experience together. And it felt so important to me to put her in that book, not just the way that I saw her, but the way that she saw herself. Um, And to put those things in conversation and dialogue. And I hope that what we get from those stories is not just my sentimental musings, but it's the picture of what complex Black women look like, what complex Black women live every single day. My mom's story is no different than the millions of Black women who are 
trying to make a dollar out of 15 cents, trying to make their dreams matter and happen after everybody else gets to go to sleep after they've taken care of everybody else. And I ask in the book, right? Like what, what would be different, right? If black women could pursue our dreams while we're awake. You almost, you just like preempted the question that I have, which is about, you write about intersectional feminism. And before I ask you about how you've come to define that and you, you, you allude and talk about and name Kimberly Crenshaw um, and the various folk that you've learned from, um, I want you to talk about how you come to define it and apply it to your organizing, your writing and your life. But I also wanna read again, because I think people need to understand that um, what I love about the book is that it's a lot of, you're doing this important work of offering this social cultural analysis and social history. You're giving us a glimpse into your thinking as an organizer, but you're writing beautifully. Um, And it's hard to be able to get beautiful words out, right? Um, And to craft a book with a narrative arc um, when you're trying to, when you're, when you're trying to hold all those pieces together. But let me read this part here. Um, These were my first lessons in politics. Survival, survival and dignity were priorities, but to fight for them meant taking an overlapping, taking on overlapping challenges of economics, sex and gender politics and race. These were also my first lessons in intersectional feminism. Consent, choice, agency, pleasure, access to information and access to contraception up to and including abortion were essential elements of true sexual equality. But before I had read feminist theory, are taken in ethnic studies class, I knew that Black women in particular were often denied access to these things. These were not matters of academic or theoretical concern. These were problems I could see just by opening my eyes every morning. But I was also learning what it takes to fight back. My mother's determination to raise a little Black girl child and tell her that she could be as free as she wanted to be, as independent as she wanted to be, and to fight for that little black girl to be seen as smart enough and capable enough to change the world was a revolutionary act of liberation. These were the actions of a decidedly feminist black woman trying to raise a child, support a family, pursue her own dreams, and demand the dignity that she deserved in Marin County, California. Mm. Um, I start here because feminist politics, black feminism, uh, intersectional feminism, which is black feminism, is at the heart. It is the glue holding your book together. Talk a bit about um, how that your politics, your feminist politics, was the glue for which you put the pieces of this book together. Mm-hmm. You know, my mom taught me so much about what it meant to be a woman and a black woman in this world, what it meant to love other women um, and what it meant to love black people. You know, some of my earliest memories of my mother are her giving me what I call the lessons of Blackness. (laughs) So, you know, my mom used to say things to me like, whenever you see another Black person, you say hello. I don't care if you know them or not. Okay. You know, (laughs) in a lot of ways, something, right? Just acknowledge their presence and their existence. And I, I, it was so confusing to me as a kid. I was like, why? I don't know that person. And she had also taught me, you know, you don't have to talk to anybody you don't want to talk to. You don't want to, you don't have to hug anybody you don't want to hug. Right. She was teaching me all of these different, very layered 
lessons about how to survive in this world and also how to live with dignity and how to provide other people with the dignity that they deserve. And, you know, one of my mom's big, big lessons also was that we are each other's responsibility. And, you know, I had a lot of lessons growing up, but I want to highlight one that um, I relearned when my mom was dying. And when she was in her hospital bed, she had a lot of visitors. People came who I recognized, some people I didn't. And every single person would tell me stories about how my mom took care of them that I didn't know. Family members who, uh, you know, had struggled with addiction and they had become estranged um, from our other family members. And through the process of their recovery, they had to go through a process of making amends and going to therapy. But because they were estranged from people, um, they didn't have anybody to show up with them. So my mom did that. And I had no idea. She never told anyone. It was just what she did. Uh, I have another family member who, um, when I was younger, was going through a pretty bad divorce. And uh, he wasn't making a lot of money at the time. And so what my mom would do is when she would go to the grocery store to shop for our family, she would get an extra bag of groceries and she would leave it outside the door. We didn't know <laughs> that this was happening, but these were the stories that I heard about her. And you know, it's really fascinating because my mom never used the word feminist. She never used the word intersectional. And I don't even know if she knew what that was. It's just how she lived her life. And for me, growing up with all of those lessons and those examples, and then going into university and learning Black feminist theory, of course it clicked for me, right? I was like, oh, like th this is what my mom meant, but this was how I was being raised. And I, I wanted to put those those stories in the book, Darnell, because, you know, sometimes I lament about the fact that for those of us that do social change work, for those of us who want to change the world, we can become our own insular clique, right? Mm -hmm. We use a set of language that people don't fully understand, they don't really care about, right? But at the at the core of it people care about dignity and they care about survival. Mm -hmm. And ultimately what people long for, right, is to be well, to thrive, not just to get by. And those are the lessons that shaped me in getting into political work. And it's why I think a lot of people come into this work. But so often we can kind of narrow it into these categories that, um, maybe are outside of people. So what I wanted to do was not throw them away, right? I don't believe in anti-intellectualism and that's another challenge that yes. we But what I wanted to do is break it open so that we could look under the hood together and say, okay, what is this really? And how does this relate to my life? For me growing up, you know, my mom taught me more than um, be nice to other women, right? She through her life and through our experiences, showed me a lot about how Black women in particular um, are devalued in this society and also how this society is built on our shoulders. And she also, through that, taught me so much about 
all of the different layers of people's complex experiences and and worldviews. Um, you know, growing up in my house, uh, we my parents were antique dealers, and uh, we had a family friend that my dad did business with. Uh, who I knew um, growing up, you know, in the first part of my life, I knew him as a man. And um, later they transitioned and became a woman. And they, I think, um, and by they, I mean my family, nobody tripped, right? Like, I think my parents couldn't fully explain, right, what it meant to be trans. I don't think they could fully explain to me what it meant to see someone in one form and then to see them in their actual form, right? But in my house, right, because my parents were an interracial couple, um, there was this kind of ethos, right, that like people are complicated and mm -hmm. that no matter what, right, people deserve respect and they deserve dignity. And as I went on into, you know, my work over time, of course, there's more layers than even that, right? It's not just that people deserve respect and dignity, um, but it is also that we're not all created equal, right? Mm -hmm. And so to get to that place of dignity, we have to fight the rigged rules that keep people from being able to access that. Mm -hmm. These are the kinds of experiences that I wanted to showcase in this book because I wanted people to know that you don't have to show up at a protest of millions to be a part of making change. That actually the change that we need to make is, is in your own house. <laughs> it's in your own community. It's in your own family. It's in your workplace. It is completely accessible to you. And you don't have to be anything else than who you are. But hopefully what this book can do is provide you with a knapsack of tools uh, to be able to go at it and know that, all of the things that you're grappling with, you're not alone. These are things that activists and organizers all over the world grapple with at the same time. I love that story about your family. It reminds me of my own. I mean, I always tell people, you know, the grounds of my politics are the way in which I understand my work in the world has everything to do with how my people raise me. That's right. Um, you write, I was born in January, 1981, Two weeks later, Ronald Reagan was sworn in as the 40th president of the United States, end quote. Um, you then go on to lay out a cursory history of the social, social, cultural, and political landscape that would ultimately make the movement for Black lives possible. Neoliberalism, neoconservatism, cultural wars, the war on drugs, the criminalization of poverty, etc., and you offer a concise description of all that preempted this moment. Wondering if you can comment on that briefly and why it was important to include. Um, I thought that that was so well done and it's hard, I know, to get as concise as possible. That could be a book in and of itself. Um, but if you, if you had to sort of do your five minute, here's a sort of brief snapshot 101 on how we got to where we are lay out for the audience that that sort of genie that trajectory sure. um thank you for appreciating that chapter it was <laughs> one of the hardest ones to write. i, I can only imagine Ooh, it went through all the revisions and then i scrapped it and like went at it again right and i i thought that the best way to tell that story is by inserting myself in it so um you know i grew up and was born in the 80s. And um, this was 
uh, the real kind of turning point toward um, not just conservatism, right, but a rolling back of all of the gains that, um, you know, my parents and people of my parents' generation fought for. And, you know, inside of that, right, um, as Black people have always been fighting for our freedom uh, in, a, in a society that um, is deeply rigged, right? It, it, it's rigged in relationship to how power is allocated and how it's distributed. Um, at that particular point when I was coming up, uh, what was happening was a big backlash actually against civil rights, a big backlash against black power. But then simultaneously there were these um, openings, right? That black folks had created and kind of absorbed ourselves right into um, the status quo and taken so much of um, the, the, the fruits of our fight, right? And, and asserted that to be at the table was the progress. And I think, you know, we can talk about um, the culture wars, the war on drugs. I talk about gangster rap and the congressional hearings where I remember, because, you know, I was like a nerdy kid. So I was watching C SPAN. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> I was you, you was watch, look, we were watching C SPAN and I was listening to NWA. Like you understand? That. That's exactly what I was doing. <laughs> I was listening to Yo Yo, you know, okay. he was protege. But um, yeah, I mean, my memories of that moment and one of the stories that I love is um, talking about getting my understanding of politics also from pop culture and, you know, growing up on MTV news and when there was MTV news and it was a real news show <laughs> and learning about international politics, learning about the struggle over women's bodies, right. And, and, you know, uh, reproductive freedom, uh, learning about famine, right. In, in Sudan, learning about, um, AIDS and HIV. I remember Ryan White, who uh, was a kid who contracted HIV through a blood transfusion and all of the ways he was stigmatized. And I just remember MTV News went in on that story for almost a full year. It was every single day there was something about Ryan White and the unjust way he was being treated, zooming in on the ways in which people were so um, uninformed about what this disease actually was, what it meant for communities, and um, people were scared. And you could see it everywhere. You could see it in the ways that laws were changing. You could see it in the ways that laws weren't changing. And you could also see it in the activism of the era. Um, I, you know, I also talk a lot about, uh, you know, um, how I got into activism and really getting involved in this fight around reproductive freedom uh, because I, I had been raised by a single mother for the first part of my life who talked to me a lot about sex and she didn't do the stork thing, right? She was like, sex makes babies and babies are expensive, right? <laughs> That's what you need to know. And, you know, learning about, um, you know, uh, uh, learning about my body from a, a video called the, the Miracle of Life that my mother had clipped UPC codes for months to get this free copy, right, from PBS. And she sat me down in front of it and was like, this is going to be your education. I mean, I tried to talk about how Black women were faring in that moment. I tried to talk about how Black children were faring in that moment, the ways in which Reagan's policies were impacting Black children like me, who uh, was, you know, using free and reduced lunch. And, uh, 
you know, who was testing for gifted and talented education programs and being told by my school that uh, I couldn't be in it, right? And my mom saying, you know, I'm fighting for this because I work too hard and I can't afford for you to be turned away from opportunities just because you're Black. Um, You know, I talk a lot in the book about kind of uh, the turn in the 90s, right? Uh, All the hysteria around gangster rap and Black poverty, right? But no programs or policies that were actually redirecting resources uh, to urban areas that had been devastated by uh, the war on drugs, that had been then devastated by the war on gangs. Um, All of these kind of factors lead up to where we are now, where we essentially have uh, a president with authoritarian tendencies, uh, a president who has taken some of those policies from the Reagan era, including his slogan of Make America Great Again. He has taken it into this age and put it on steroids. And what it results in is, uh, you know, babies in cages, uh, mothers and families being torn apart at the border. It results in, uh, you know, uh, people being in a nine-month pandemic, right? And there being complete denial that there even is a pandemic. And the same way that there was denial, by the way, about the, the reality the of crisis. HIV and AIDS, exactly. which today, by the way, is World AIDS Day, right? Like, so there's that, there was that denial too, yeah. There is. And so, you know, I, I want people to understand that this moment is not actually an anomaly. It is a result, right, of decades of social policy. It's a result of decades of unwritten rules that have gotten us to where we are today. And I feel that if we are able to expose it, and again, look under the hood and demystify, you know, is this uh, a comet that came out of nowhere or had we always been going down this path and we just weren't paying attention? Um, so that we can start to figure out what to do about it. Mm. I also, you know, later in the book, talk about kind of how this movement emerges under the first Black president in the history of this country, so that we can get a sense of the context for this movement, the context for this moment, and hopefully what it allows people to do is to ask themselves the same questions. Who who was running things when I was coming up? You know, what, what did I learn about the way that the world worked and how much of that was true and how much of it was politicized? Uh, and what does that mean for the actions that I take in the world now? What does it mean for how I understand the movements that are happening around me? And what's my role? What, yeah. what role am I going to play in changing the course of history? Whew. Speaking about roles. Yeah. Your organizing journey is laid out in the book. Um, it's compelling. Uh, and I think it's so important to have these narratives, these life narratives that demystifies this idea that somehow people, you know, wake up and sometimes you just fall into the work. But for many folk or organizers, there's been histories of work um, that have led up to what might be understood as spectacular moments. So take us through, to borrow from um, the title of one book, The Brief, Wondrous Journey of Alicia the Organizer. Yeah. (laughs) Well, um, you know, I I started doing activist work when I was 12 around reproductive rights and freedom. Did that work all the way through college. And 
um, got really disillusioned, actually, once I started to learn more about the origins and the roots of this movement, at least some of the white roots of this movement, um, I became disillusioned of something that I had put my heart and my soul into could have any kind of tie or legacy to the eugenics movement, to forced sterilization of Black and, and Puerto Rican women. Um, and, you know, at the time I was doing student activist work with, you know, one of the largest reproductive justice groups in America, actually internationally. And I just said, I can't, I can't do this. Like, I don't, I don't know how I can reconcile it. Right. I mean, one of the chapters that I was involved in in San Diego did a Margaret Sanger day where they celebrated Margaret Sanger mm -hmm. and I being who I was and being, you know, who I was at that time, I was like, I will never. <laughs> right? And so I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to be a part of that anymore. I have to figure out where else I'm going to be. And, um, I, when I graduated from college, I got really involved. I wanted to come home, first of all. You know, you're in Southern California, I'm in Northern California. You know, our sister Patrice in LA too. And I always say that she and I are the two-state solution because Northern Californians, we don't do Southern California and Southern Californians don't do Northern California, but we have been the bridge. <laughs> we have been the bridge. So look, I wanted to come home. Southern California was not for me. Um, and I wanted to do work in the place where I had grown up. And so I started doing racial justice organizing, economic justice organizing here in the Bay Area. Um, I came home and I was doing like a lot of service work, right? I worked at a, a youth health center doing HIV testing and pregnancy prevention work, violence prevention work. I wasn't sure that that was exactly the work that I needed to do. It felt um, a little patronizing to me. You know, the community I worked in was largely of color and the providers and practitioners were largely white. Um, and I got accepted into an organizing program, a training program that taught young people of color how to organize in their communities. And I got placed in an organization that uh, fought back against police brutality and violence and had expanded its work to include gentrification and uh, economic justice work and environmental justice work. It was a contentious shift. I didn't put all that in the book, child, but there's a whole book there. Um, and that's where I learned how to door knock. So I learned how to door knock in the community I live in now, in the streets of East and West Oakland. And it was really where I learned about the resilience of people. And it was where I learned the technical skills. And then I spent 10 years in a small community in Southeast San Francisco called Bayview Hunters Point uh, and spent 10 years there organizing against gentrification and displacement and for right development that um, centered the community that it was surrounding. Um, it was there that I ran my first campaign, Starnell. It was there where I had my first heartbreaks. It was there I lost my first campaign. Uh, and it was a campaign I put everything into. And I write about that campaign in the book. I write about all the organizing lessons that I learned there, including what it means to build coalitions that um, would surprise you. Uh, what it means to really invest, right, in resilient strategies as opposed to 
uh, just being defensive or reactive, right? Um, what it means to connect with people, not around issues, but about what they long for, right? Mm -hmm. um, I talk in the book about, you know, how people in Bayview Hunters Point taught me how to fight and taught me how to win, right? So 10 years after having organized there, Darnell, I can tell you the things that we were fighting for <laughs> are now coming to fruition. And um, it's an important lesson in the pace and rate of change, that, yep. pace, that change sometimes is really fast and a lot of times it's really slow and you can't see it, touch it, taste it. And you may not see it, touch it, taste it for 20 years, child, but it's always worth it. Oh, you're making me think about Newark, New Jersey, um, which is which is a second home for me and the same, the same lesson. That's right. Um, you, you hinted at coalition and I want to read again um, what you wrote about um, the complications and joys of multiracial organizing and a prevailing presence of anti-Black racism, which I think is important to comment on. Um, but you write, all immigrants are taught to steer, steer clear of Black people, lest they be considered one themselves. In a society where anti-Blackness is a fulcrum around which white supremacy functions, building multiracial organizations and movements without disrupting anti-Blackness in all of its forms is about as good for a movement as a bicycle is for a fish. First of all, that'll preach. So I, I'm not a preach. If, if y'all, if y'all on this right now, I'm a church boy. That thing right there, I'm preach. Say a bit. Uh, we, I have one more question, but I, I could not end without having you comment, particularly in a moment where there's so much energy around um, activist work, yeah. organizing. Talk about the danger and the opposite of danger, the, the opportunities that we have in really forming. Um, multiracial, multi-identity coalitions in a ways that I think about people like Kathy Cohen teaching us about that can be free of anti-Blackness, which keeps the work from not being done. That's right. So let me start from where we're trying to go. Which is <laughs> okay. that what the purpose, right, of building these kinds of coalitions is to build a multiracial democracy. And for everybody who's watching right now, you know, right now the and, and for the history of this nation, the rules have been made by white men, by white cisgender heterosexual men. And if you even were to look at the history of who has been the leaders of this nation by being presidents, you'll see there's only one black person in, in 46 administrations, right? So fast forwarding to what's gonna happen on January 21st. And multiracial coalitions are not the same as college campus brochures where you got <laughs> one of everybody and everybody's kind of smiling and locking arms and kumbaya. Underneath all that kumbaya has to be work. It has to be about learning about each other's histories, untelling the stories that we've been told about ourselves and each other, and recreating new narratives that are rooted in truth and experience, but mm. that can project a different future. And so in this book I do, I talk about how I learned to do multiracial organizing. And it's interesting, Darnell, because now that I, I, I'm focused on building power for Black folks, 
people be like, well, what about everybody else? I'm like, look, don't worry. <laughs> my, my roots, <laughs> my roots are actually in bringing communities together. And what I've realized through that work is that Black people, Black communities are deeply underorganized. And so if I am one person that can only focus on one thing, that's what I'm focusing on. But it's for the purpose, right, of building this multiracial democracy where Black people are full participants. I want us to, to analyze the stories that we tell about each other, but also the ways that we counter those stories. You know, in my early organizing work, I talk about how, you know, we'd be in membership meetings and people would say like, well, you know, if just Mexicans weren't so lazy, blah, 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 blah. And everybody would gasp, right? Because obviously it wasn't the correct thing to say. Um, but inside of it, right, we were also telling people not to see what they see. Um, and what is wrong with that, right, is that you could tell somebody the sky is green, but if they look up and the sky is blue, they're going to nod and smile at you, but the sky is still blue. They're not going to believe that it's green, child. So instead of saying, no, 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 you can't say that, it's important for us to give context to what it is that people see. It's important for us to give context to how people got to a place. Maybe it's not that people are lazy, right? Maybe it's that people are out of work. Maybe it's that people are unemployed. Maybe it's that we have an economy, right, that um, thrives on um, exploited labor, right? Um, you know, when we would hear from other groups, well, you know, Black people have fought, they fought a civil rights movement, and now they're not taking advantage of the things that they won. <laughs> you got to give people context for what it is they see, well, maybe it's not that Black people aren't taking advantage of what we've fought for. Maybe it's that the things that we fought for have been rolled back. Maybe it's that they were never fully implemented. Hmm. Maybe what I'm not going to tell you that you don't see brothers on the corner, right? Because you do see brothers on the corner. But let me explain to you why. Yeah. And from there, you can actually do some investigation and interrogation of well, where did I learn that story from? Where did I learn the story that civil rights was the end-all be-all? Where did I learn the story that Mexicans are lazy? Um, who, taught, who taught me that story and how does it benefit them? And what is the actual story? What's the story that we're going to rewrite together? And then with that, Darnell, there are all these things between us that sometimes we just don't talk about. We don't talk about the fact that um, Blackness is widely, widely, um, disparaged. And it's disparaged among communities of color. It's disparaged among immigrant communities, including Black immigrant communities, right? Like, we have to understand the layers of our complex experiences and build the kinds of relationships that last. Because if we don't, under pressure, um, those relationships will fall apart very easily. The minute a Black person is killed in a community, the minute a, a, a Chinese person is killed in a Black community, right? If we have not built those relationships where we actually understand where each other comes from, what we experience and why, then all of that unity falls away because fear and anxiety, right, is the name of the day. And it is what this other powerful movement has been building power around for more than 30 years. They have been weaponizing fear and anxiety to keep us apart. So our jobs, right, is to do the deep work of not only strengthening the bonds between us, but telling each other the truth. 
you know, I just read a piece from Audre Lorde. It was from a speech that she gave at Harvard University in February of 1982. And she said, we know what it, what it means to be lied to, so we shouldn't lie to ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. And so that, that, I think, is, is the core idea behind that chapter. Awesome, awesome. Awesome. I I could go on and on with questions, but I want to open up now to the audience and take some questions from them. And we have about 10 minutes for audience questions, so we'll try to get to as many as we can. But a question here says, um, a lot of people I march with have gone silent after Biden-Harris won the election. How do we plan on keeping up the heat? Mm. Um, Well, I want to encourage a couple of things. Um, Number one, Silence can mean a lot of things. (laughs) I I will tell you, um, as somebody who worked really, really hard to defeat the greatest threat to humanity in a generation, um, I too have been quiet on socials. I've been quiet on a lot of the platforms that, you know, communicate to people that things are happening. But that's because we're doing work. <laughs> it's not because it's not because we're 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 pacified. It's because we're now trying to figure out how to grapple with this new reality, where it was our movement that literally pushed that campaign over the finish line, and almost right away, right there is this flip to like um, reconciliation without truth, and then also um, status quo politics. Right. Um, I think that in a lot of ways, organizers are grappling with what does it mean to engage with an administration that is nostalgic about the Obama administration, but is not itself the Obama administration? What should our position be in relationship to that? And how do we understand, um, you know, uh, these kinds of shifts and how do we keep the momentum up? So my plea to you would be. Uh, give folks a little bit of room. It ain't that people ain't working. People are not pacified. Uh, it's been like three weeks and folk are trying to figure out how to recoup. On top of that, we still got Senate races in Georgia that we need to win if anything is going to get done in this next four years. And that's not even about Biden and Harris child. That's literally about how laws and policies get made. Uh, the president can do a bunch of executive orders, but that's going to make a bunch of people mad. So there's a lot of work that's got to be done, and we've got to change the balance of power in Congress in order to do it. And then in relationship to that, I will just say um, we're not out of the woods with this. Um, I call him toupee fiasco. We are not out of the woods. I mean, <laughs> these people um, have still not conceded. Uh, all, all, all signs point to them going to be needing to be dragged out of this White House. And, uh, you know, in, in just about a week, right, we're waiting on the results of the electoral college votes. Um, and that is going to be complicated. So I think, you know, we need to give some stuff some room to breathe. But with that, let me say, don't let people be quiet for too long now. If you you don't hear from me in a month, I need you to come pull my coattails too and make sure that you check in for folks. Uh, but also give people a little bit of space. I think folks are trying to figure it out and get, get the feet under their, get their ground underneath their feet. Okay, let's see what I can, what, what questions we can pull from here. Um, your book, I'm going to ask this one because I want to be able to point back to your book because you write about this in your book. But the question is, what would you say to people who are interested in becoming a civil rights activist, but do not know where to start? Oh, 
Well, the first thing I would say is figure out what it is that you care about. Mm. Um, like really what it is that gets you out of bed every single day, what you fall asleep dreaming about at night. And then find other people who care about the same things that you do and join them. And then once you do that, I'm going to give you three steps. <laughs> and then once you do that, expand your team. Um, so, you know, for so many of us, I think we think that to become an activist, we got to grab a bullhorn and a picket sign and we got to know all the things. You actually don't need to do any of that. <laughs> it's great to be out in the streets, but what's also great is to use your talents and your skills in the service of a movement. So if you're a writer, write for the movement. If you are an architect, build for the movement. If you're a tax attorney, keep people out of jail. Like we really need <laughs> everybody to find their role, to play their position and play it like you've never played it before. I love that. Um, this question is growing up, how did you deal with the system trying to change who you are to fit white standards, especially in classrooms where education supports and where education supports and upholds white supremacy? Oh, such a great question. Um, we're all being shaped by that right now, even still. And, you know, the earlier question about politics, I think, is a really good example that relates to education. You know, I just before we got on, I, I just read this article in the Hill that was quoting President Obama saying that, um, you know, snappy slogans like defund the police uh, don't do much but um, turn people off. And, mm. and I said to myself, well, first I said to myself, self, put your phone down so you don't start acting <laughs> up on social medias. And then I said to myself, I'm like, I know that feeling. I know that feeling of um, being caught in this position where you think you got to appeal <laughs> to a certain audience and you don't actually. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and what that takes is not the knowledge of it. It's the embodiment of it. Mm. Um, there is, and I want to just make this really plain and clear. Um, you know, that pressure to conform, it lives inside of all of us. And every single time I choose not to, like I feel it in my body, I feel hot and clammy and I feel exposed and I feel all the ways and I still do it. <laughs> I still do it because it is the truest form of me. Um, and so I highly recommend it. I highly recommend feeling clammy and vulnerable and exposed as many times a week as you possibly can without overflowing because you know, it helps you build muscle memory. Um, yeah, it helps you build muscle memory. Another question that may, this, this one might require another hour, but um, I think it's worth attending to. Um, do you believe 2020 is a watershed year for racial reckoning and change in America? Or do you worry that people are sliding away from the movement six months after George Floyd's death? Mm. You know, I'm so honored to have been in this work for 20 years. And in this particular iteration of this movement for the last seven years, and grateful to be in it with you, Darnell, and I hope you saw yourself in the book. Yeah. Um, I don't worry about that because I have seen so many waves. And what I know is that waves always come back to shore no matter what. And what I think we're seeing actually is 
a reckoning that we are going to read about in history books. Um, and it will not be complete. And in fact, mm -hmm. I, I, I don't think we're going to see the completeness of it in our lifetime. I mean, it is so entrenched in everything that we do. It's so entrenched in every way that we live that we are going to experience many, many more reckonings over the course of our lifetimes. And so um, I shift my expectations around that. Um, lastly, I'll say that I do worry about the branding that people engage in, but I also know that that is a result too of this last decade, right? I, I, this is the only time I can remember where uh, organizers and activists have been made into public figures in in a way that Martin Luther King was or or Malcolm X was. Like it reminds me of being in in um, in South Africa, right, where everything is Nelson Mandela, right? Even though South Africans will will have quarrels with you about that, they'd be like, yes. "Well, there's there's actually a lot of story to this." We have a habit and a practice of making symbols out of people. And it's a way for us to tell the stories of history, how we got here. It's a way for us to talk about who we are, but it can also be very dangerous. Um, but that is why we keep fighting and that is why um, we build movements. And last question before the actual last question. Mm -hmm. How do we prioritize and organize anti-racist teachings in educational spaces and our circles? Mm. Um, honestly, the way to prioritize it, especially in a moment where anti-racist education is being attacked, it's being attacked by the president of the United States, he is attacking critical race theory, he is attacking intersectionality, he is attacking everything that is changing the unwritten rules of how it is that we be together. And so I think the, the way to counter that, right, is with audacity. Um, you know, this isn't the first time we've seen this. I mean, we saw, right, in Arizona, they tried to ban ethnic studies, right? And people still persisted. Um, and I think the way to kind of complicate this, right, is what are the subversive and not subversive ways that we can introduce um, these kinds of ideas to students. Um, you know, it's books like this one. It's books like yours, Darnell. It's the stories of our lives that I think are not the books that are like, this is the anti-racist curriculum, <laughs> right? But it is the anti-racist curriculum. So um, continuing to put these stories into the hands of students, I think, is actually very, very important. Um, I'm not an educator, so I can't tell you, like, what is the methodology for how you do this? But what I can say um, is that the books that I remember um, that have changed my life were those random books on a syllabus child. They were like all of the, the foundational texts. And then there was the books that I actually liked reading, right? <laughs> Which were the memoirs, right? They were the personal accounts, the personal testimonials that help all those things make sense. Okay. So now we make it to an informed tradition, which is to ask all of our speakers the following question. What is your 60 second idea to change the world? I'd love to hear yours. I'm gonna be goofy, but this is where I'm at right now. Um, I believe that we should have a national holiday 
that circulates around fried chicken and champagne. <laughs> Sign me up. That's it. I'm ready to be signed up. Okay. <laughs> Sign me the hell up. Look, you know. I'm so here for it. I'm so here for it. <laughs> Alicia, thank you so much for thank joining you. us today at Inforum at the Commonwealth Club. And if you'd like to watch more virtual programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash online. I'm Darnell Moore. Thank you. Thank you, Alicia. And everybody who's been part of this conversation, please stay safe. <laughs>